Our Old Testament lesson, as I mentioned earlier, is from Isaiah chapter 6. It's all of Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. And here we have um, Isaiah's um, <clears throat> vision of being in the temple and looking up and seeing, uh, seeing God on his throne and even the, the train of his robe coming down and filling the temple. And so this is this place where heaven and earth meet, and he's having this experience of that. And, um, and then sort of his response and where things go from there. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you've made, and we thank you for your word that you have given to us. And Lord, we ask this morning that as we hear your word read and proclaimed, that you would help us to understand understand more about who you are, more about uh, the ways that you work in this world and in our lives. God, that we would come to know you better, that we would come to love and trust you more in everything. God, that you would give us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will be laid waste again, again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Turning then, to Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. Jesus begins teaching uh, with, as he usually does, (laughs) saying, by saying things that... uh, are unexpected, reversals 
of the way people understand things to work. The kingdom of God is different. And so starting in verse 17 of chapter 6 in Luke, it says, He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are nearing the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, out of 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And so uh, as we begin this chapter, I do want to remind you where we've come from and where we're going. And I also, oh, I forgot, I need to issue a warning on this particular sermon. I don't usually have warnings before sermons, but this one needs one. Snakes can hurt you. Don't play with snakes. That is just a general warning, especially in West Texas, is important information. As the sermon goes, you'll understand where this is coming from. We have an, a situation in the passage today where Paul picks up a snake, it bites him, nothing bad happens. There are people who take this, plus some things that Jesus says in Mark 16, and say, yeah, that's what Christians are supposed to do, is be picking up snakes. And no, it's not. <laughs> Don't be picking up snakes. We'll talk about that a little bit, but I don't want you to miss that <laughs> uh, going from here. Okay, so here's where we have been uh, so far in Acts. Jesus was raised from the dead. We could stop right there, right? Jesus was raised from the dead. <laughs> and then he uh, tells the disciples, you are going to be my witnesses in all Jerusalem in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what we have seen throughout the rest of the book of Acts is that is then what happens. As the Spirit comes on the disciples at Pentecost in chapter 2, and then the Spirit leads the disciples through the rest of the book of Acts as they go and they spread the good news of Jesus in Jerusalem and then in all Judea and Samaria and now to the ends of the earth. And now as we get to the very end of the book of Acts, that's what's happening is Paul is nearing uh, Rome, which is where he's been trying to get to for a long time. And the last several weeks, we looked at Paul as he's been sailing through the Mediterranean Sea, and things have been quite rough, <laughs> quite difficult as uh, they experienced storm on the sea and even shipwreck. And yet, they survived. 
They survived the shipwreck. They end up on an island, and that's where we pick up the story today as he nears, uh, as he nears Rome, but he's not there yet. So let's read first, and we'll talk about what this has to do, with what this means, and then what this means for us. Here we go. Acts 28, verses 1 through 10. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, a chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways. And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. So there you go. At this point, we could just say, go and do likewise. And you would say, I have no idea what that means. Are we supposed to go washing up on shores, picking up snakes? <laughs> no, that's not it at all. So what do we do with a passage like this? Well, we go through it and try to understand better what's actually happening here. And here's, uh, here's a part of what's happening here. As we see Paul continuing in this story that we've been reading all through Acts. We see Paul continuing to do what he's been doing everywhere he's been going. And this is a bit unusual given his current circumstance. Because as you read this, it sounds like Paul doing what he's been doing, going from place to place, praying for people, healing people. And yet, if you remember how he got here, he didn't come to Malta as a missionary. He came as a survivor of a shipwreck, and he was only on that ship because he's a prisoner awaiting trial in Rome. So think about that. As you read this account, it sounds like Paul doing what Paul does as a missionary. <laughs> Maybe we should say as a Christian. And yet the reason he came to this island was because he was a prisoner who has now been shipwrecked and washed up on shore. I think uh, this explains partly why when, uh, when Paul writes in Philemon, oh, I didn't mark it. The way he usually introduces himself uh, in the various letters he writes is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, that sort of thing. An apostle of Christ Jesus, one sent by God. But a couple places he writes this. Ephesians 3, Philemon, several times. We'll talk about why this Wednesday. But he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Instead of describing himself as an apostle, he also describes himself sometimes as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Isn't that interesting? 
But that makes sense of what we just read in Acts. If as a prisoner, he's on this boat. As a prisoner, he's going through this shipwreck. As a prisoner, he washes up on the island. But he's not a prisoner of Rome. He's a prisoner of Christ. And so wherever he is, he's still going to be doing exactly what he would be doing, uh, serving Jesus, loving people, wherever he is and however he gets there. Now, this was clearly misunderstood by the people on the island. They see a bunch of shipwrecked people wash up on their shore. And they don't think, oh, good, here come some missionaries. <laughs> oh, good, here, here's some Christian." No. They are seeing, you know, people who kind of drown rats coming out of the ocean who need help. And they build them a fire. They do what they can where they are to help these people, which kind of goes along with ancient culture of hospitality, but also that's just good for us to note that there are people who are clearly not Christians, and we see they don't understand the message even later, but they're not Christians, and yet they are still showing kindness, showing goodness, showing love to strangers. And if, uh, if that is the case for people who are not Christian, my goodness, should that not be the case for people who are Christians to be those who are quick to show kindness and do what we can with what we have, where we are, to show love to others, uh, especially those in need of help. This is uh, how they are welcomed to the island. It's cold, it's rainy, they build them a fire. But as it's going, we see that the, uh, the people from the shipwreck, I mean, Paul's not passive, he goes along, he's helping build the fire. And this is why he's getting the brushwood, he's throwing it in the fire, but that's when we have the incident with the snake. And we have to talk about the incident with the snake because this is where we have a very different uh, difference of perspective between the people on the island and Christians, especially us now, reading this, looking back on it. The people on the island interpreted this two different ways, just back to back, right? So first, what do they think was the issue? They thought this guy who is, I mean, he's got Roman guards with him. He's obviously a prisoner. He is uh, headed to Rome to be on trial. And now he's been bit by the snake. And they say, well, clearly, we know exactly what's going on. The gods are trying to kill him. That's what's happening. They tried to kill him by sea. That's why they took the ship down. But he managed to survive. And now he's getting uh, bit by a snake because you just can't run forever. And this actually is consistent with the way that they looked at uh, the gods, that the gods were not all-powerful, and that you could kind of outwit and uh, outmaneuver the will of the gods. And so if you remember uh, kind of the, the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the story of Ulysses or Odysseus, depending, uh, trying to get home, and he's angered the sea god uh, Poseidon or Neptune, again, depending, Greek-Roman. But, uh, but as he's trying to get home, this god of the sea has determined, no, he's not going to make it home. And so we're going to try to kill him in every way possible or at least keep him from ever making it home. And he gets the participation of other gods along the way and that kind of thing. And it is, oh, it's a fun story to read through. <laughs> but, uh, but kind of the point of the whole thing is, and spoiler, I guess, but you've had time enough to read it by now. <laughs> this is ancient literature. Uh, he makes it home. That it, by his wits, 
and by his skills and by maneuvering, he outmaneuvers the will of the gods. And so that's kind of the lesson that you learn from that story is, yes, the gods might want to, uh, to harm you. They might have it out, out for you. But if you are just cunning enough, you can, you know, on your own outdo that. And I think, unfortunately, we've carried a lot of that message into our culture today, that that's sort of how we view God and whatever it is he's doing, and we can kind of uh, get around his will. If you read throughout the Bible, this is not the way that God is presented. Not at all. And so it makes sense for the people on the island to see that sort of thing and say, aha, the gods are trying to kill him. They didn't get him on the sea. Now they're going to try uh, with the snake, <laughs> right? But the way that God is presented is, I mean, from page one of the Bible, and God said, let this happen, and it happened. And that's what we get from page one all the way through. When God says this is what's going to happen, this is what's going to happen. And one of my uh, favorite stories of this that sort of goes right against the Ulysses story is the story of Ahab. You remember the story of Ahab? He's one of the kings in Israel, and God sends a prophet to him that says, if you go into this battle, you're not coming home. You will die in battle. And Ahab tries to pull a Ulysses. <laughs> and he says, well, I, I know what I'll do. I will disguise myself. No one will know that I'm the king. And then that way I can go into battle and I'll be fine. I'll be fine. God doesn't know what he's talking about. And so he tries to outwit and outmaneuver the will of God. And then it says uh, that what happens is while he's in the middle of the battle, they actually do. His plan seems to be working. People are going after some other guy dressed as a king. And then they realize it's not him. And it's like, ah, plan is working. No, it's not. It says, then someone drew his bow at random, fires an arrow into the air, and it hits King Ahab between the sections of his armor. And he is delivered a, a mortal wound. And he does not survive the day, and he never comes home from that battle. And you go, how random was that bow shot? <laughs> that is not very random. When God says this is what is going to happen, we can try to outmaneuver as much as we want. That's not the way that it works. And so uh, this is <laughs> it's part of what happens with us, but this is also why their interpretation of the events is clearly wrong. If God had wanted Paul to die in the ocean, he never would have made it to land. But he does make it to land. So their interpretation of the events or situation is clearly not right. But then they say, oh, okay, now. <laughs> then he, he shakes it off and nothing happens to him. They expect him to, uh, to swell up or suddenly fall dead. That's an exciting watch party, isn't it? They expect him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. This is not the first time this has happened uh, with Paul either. He has been other places where people are like, ah, oh, he must be a god. No, you have misunderstood again. That is not the situation. Um, he goes, then we're going to get back to what was really happening there. But he goes then to, uh, to Publius's house. They stay for three days while I get everything sorted out. And he heals, prays for this man, heals him. 
And then other people start coming. He's praying for them. He's healing them. And this is something we've talked about again and again. Every time we see uh, the gospel going into a new area, we see these sorts of things happening as signs of confirmation that this is the Spirit of God working through these people. And so we see it again, just as we would expect. Um, And that they are signs of the kingdom to come. That in the, I've told you this before, in the uh, What's in the Bible videos, as it talks about the, the Gospels, and what Jesus is doing, and it looks at all his miracles, and the way that it describes how each of these miracles is actually a sign of the kingdom when it comes in fullness. And so the way it talks about it is saying things like, you know, in the, um, in the kingdom of God, there will be no hunger. So bam, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. In the kingdom of God, there's going to be uh, no sickness. So bam, Jesus heals uh, people who are lame and who are crippled. And there's going to be no blindness. Bam, he opens the eyes of the blind. In the kingdom of God, there's going to be uh, no death. So bam, Jesus raises people from the dead. And I, I just love that way of looking at all of the miracles of Jesus as signs for what is coming in the kingdom. And I love that. Just bam, bam, bam. And especially as you read through the gospel of Mark, that's kind of how he presents it. Just one thing after another. Bam, 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 bam. And you get to the end and you're like, wow. All right. This is, this is what Jesus is pointing toward with everything he's doing. It's showing who he is and uh, also what is coming. And the same thing that we see through the disciples as they go on from here as witnesses to who Jesus is and what is coming. And so he's healing people and he's praying for them. Um, <clears throat> but there's another sign. I really do think that the snake biting uh, Paul is a sign for us as Christians. And this is where we're going to take this to end. And this is where it's going to land for us. Not that we should go out and play with snakes. We should not. But throughout the Bible, this is not the first snake that's shown up. The first one we see is the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, right? And in Genesis chapter 3, we see this conflict that's going to be set up between uh, the serpent and his descendants and the descendants of the woman. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and yours. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This has been now set up and we get to see this play out through the rest of Scripture. We see it again even in Revelation in dramatic proportions. But what we see again and again is this seed of the serpent and those represented by the serpent. As John the Baptist and Jesus both refer to people as you brood of vipers, <laughs> as people who are listening not to the voice of God, but to the voice of the evil one. He says, you are a brood of vipers. And so we see this conflict between the children of God and these snakes. And at the cross, we have this moment where we have the seed of the woman and the seed of the snake in conflict. If you've ever seen the movie uh, The Passion of the Christ, the Mel Gibson movie from years ago, 
there is a scene in that movie where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying, not, not my will be done, but your will be done. And then he's in you know, the agony of prayer, and finally he stands up to leave the garden. And as he stands up, there's this, sort of this new resolve, this strengthening uh, as he goes from there. And as he stands up, it shows as he stomps down on the ground and crushes the head of a snake. That Jesus is the one who is coming to crush the head of the snake. And not that there's an individual snake that needed to be crushed, but that symbolically it's Jesus defeating all the power of evil. And that his, but that it's, it's going to bite his heel, that it is going to cost him his life. But that's what I think we're seeing here with Paul, is that symbolically Jesus is the one who has taken the death that we deserve. He's the one who let the snake bite him so that he could defeat the snake, crush its head, destroying it forever. It would no longer have power over us. Now, this is why I say we don't go playing with snakes, but symbolically what we see with Paul here is another sign of that same sort of thing. That the power of evil is no match for the love of God, for his power. And what he says goes, right? We saw several chapters earlier, Jesus had stood uh, with Paul and said, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. If Paul doesn't make it to Rome, Jesus' word isn't, isn't true. And so when we see the storm taking him down, Jesus again says, you're going to make it. You're going to make it to land. And now we see, again, a snake biting him. This is not the gods trying to get to Paul, but this does seem like it is the symbols of the waters of chaos. And it is the beasts, and not just the beasts, but even the beast that symbolizes evil throughout Scripture. And so you see like this evil at work trying to prevent the message from getting through. And so the question we have when the snake bites Paul is, who's going to win? Are the forces of evil going to win? Or is God going to win? And here again, we have another sign of the kingdom come where there will be no more fear. There will be nothing left to fear because the power of evil has been defeated. And this is something we can begin to celebrate now that just as God, Jesus told Paul, you're going to testify about me in Rome, he has made promises to us too about uh, where we're headed and what life is going to be uh, past the grave. That death is not the end. And so just as uh, the people on the island misinterpreted what was happening, I think we're often guilty of the same thing, misinterpreting the events we live through, unless we remember the story we're a part of. And when we remember the story that we're a part of, and when we remember the promises that God has made to us, and when we remember that his love is stronger than all that the world, the flesh, and the devil can throw at us, when we remember that, then we do have strength for today. We do have hope for tomorrow. And we have a confidence where we can continue to do what he's called us to do today, trusting that he has uh, all of history and all of the future firmly in control. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.